I also think, uh, like in this, I guess it's not really how they talk about it. Yes, Sheol in the Hebrew, right? Sheol. Which is why, depending on what your experience is with the Apostles' Creed, you might have read the Apostles' Creed or recite the Apostles' Creed that says, and Jesus spent three days in the grave, or that Jesus spent three days in hell. And it will just depend on your background and your upbringing, which one it is. But that word there is the same word uh, in the original language. And it literally just means grave. Um, but we've, again taken the word grave and used it as hell. Anybody else? Yes. Um, I think like when Jesus talks about separating the sheep and the goats. Yes, in Matthew, yep. It doesn't necessarily say they're hell or whatever, it says they're separate. Yes, so this is the passage, Matthew 25, right, where it's separating the sheep from the, sheep from the goats, and it talks about, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat, all that picture, yes, Diana? Um, I was thinking the phrase that I commonly hear in our culture, like I've been through hell, and I was thinking about the book of Job. Okay. And like I want to say there's like a song, maybe it's just a song that I've heard about the church that I'm talking to, like the flames of hell. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's fine. Yeah, okay. Mitch? No, I'm just thinking of Hades, to know what that's more than me. Right, so where's a, where's a prominent place, and if you know Mitch, hang on one second, I wanna see if anyone else, where's a prominent place in the Gospels that Jesus talks about Hades and we, we change it to hell? Yes, exactly, so in, uh, they go to Caesarea Philippi, right? So Jesus takes the apostles, and they go for a long walk. It's like a 13-mile walk just for this one teaching, right? And which we don't tend to think about when we read this because we just assume. Yes, yeah, so a 13-mile walk in that type of heat. Um, so anyhow, a 13-mile walk to Caesarea Philippi, right? And Jesus says that I tell you the truth, that the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail and I will build my house upon this rock. And we get all kinds of really interesting theology out of that passage. I will let you know, you can right now, don't do it, that would be rude. Uh, you could YouTube or Google Caesarea Philippi gates of hell and it is still a place that you can go and visit today and there will probably be videos from 2018, possibly already 2019, of people standing at the gates of hell in Caesarea Philippi. So it was a literal place. It was an opening in the side of a mountain where water came out, and they imagined that if you went all the way back into there, you would eventually end up in Hades, which actually has very little moral attachment to it. It's just the underworld of these gods. Uh, it's not necessarily a moralistic thing, Right. Um, and so this picture was that if you went back in there uh, and what do we know are gates? Gates are for what purpose in ancient cities? What's that? Not quite. I mean, yes, but what's that? Yes. Defense. Your gates were defense. So when it says the gates of Hades will not prevail, it meant that the church was actually going to be the aggressor, uh, not the other way around, which sometimes I think we huddle, we do our holy huddles, afraid of the gates of Hades instead of being out, right? 
So this picture against, we have Hades, we have Sheol, we have Gehenna, we have Lake of Fire. Um, what else do we have? Do we have anything else in there? Um, Job. Um, and this forms our picture somewhat of hell, but I would argue that most of what we discussed doesn't qualify, like what we just said, doesn't actually match the stuff that we described earlier, correct? So why do you imagine that Jesus does all of these teachings that about Sheol and all of these teachings about Gehenna and all of these teachings about Hades? What do you think the value is in the teachings? Any thoughts? Bless you. Yeah. Uh, I guess based on our earlier conversation last week, it's basically the opposite of safe places. Yeah. Okay, so we're basically creating unsafe places. Yes. And in the same way that we create salvation, what can we create? Damnation. Right? Like this idea, so Abraham Heschel, we love to quote this one particular quote because it's so important, particularly in our culture today, right? Is that Heschel said, words create worlds, right? And his, the rabbi's reference is that God actually creates everything by speaking, right? So in, in Genesis 1, God speaks all this into, into existence. So God using words create worlds and that you and I, as being image bearers of God, that the words we speak actually create worlds. There are lots of philosophical conversations that happen around that that have nothing to do with religion that affirm that view. Like if you say about yourself enough times that you are not good, that you are unhealthy, that you are cruel or whatever, you will begin to actually create a world in which that is true about you, even if no one else sees it. I mean, have you experienced that? Right? You can actually create a destructive world in which you live and function that is untrue and robs you of safety, robs you of freedom, robs you of the truth about who and what you are. And this is destructive. We can do it about other people. How many times have you heard or experienced someone either gossiping about you, you gossiping about someone else, uh, or uh, you hearing, overhearing gossiping, and it ruins someone's reputation? It harms the person in some way? I think about internet bullying. The number of young kids have, have committed suicide over the years because of bullying because they began to believe and all of a sudden their world was unsafe, right? The perceived world or the actual world were unsafe to such a degree that it destroys them, right? Any, any questions or thoughts so far? All right, so this is our picture that we have that Jesus is often pointing out is that we have a choice. So remember, there's a story in the Gospels uh, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he says, you are living in a, such a way that is basically hell-bound, right? In that passage, what is he talking about? 
What, what word is he using? Anyone know? Gehenna. You are on the road to the trash heap. If you were to live in a way that reflects God's worth in the world, instead, you would be on the road to what? What's that? If you were to live under God's way. Oh, safety. Safety. And what was the image that he uses in that moment? A temple. Right? Because remember, he says, there'll come a day when you're standing outside and you're knocking and no one's going to let you in. Right? That picture. Are we all familiar with this passage? Yes? No? Maybe so? Okay. And so in this picture, Jesus is saying to them that the road splits here. We are all at a crossroad. We are at this moment in which if we continue to, to speak in this way, if we continue to function in this way, if we continue to live in this way, and he's talking to the Pharisees in this moment, you will actually begin to confuse the two roads. And the road that you'll end up on is the one that leads to Gehenna. And what does he say about Gehenna? What does he say is there? Weeping and yes, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what else is there? Undying worms, right? Worms that do not die, right? So you have to understand that in the trash heap, how many of you have met my dog, June? Raise your hand. How many of you wish you had not met my dog, June? Raise your hand. It's pretty much the same number. Um, June loves a good trash heap. Loves it. June would be one of the weeping and gnashing of teeth in this story. Because what happens in a trash heap, and we still see it today, what do you see oftentimes, like when you see pictures of like these barges with trash on it, what are they often doing to the trash? Burning. Other than dumping it. Nope. They're spraying it down with water. Constantly. Why? Yeah, it just ignites, right? It catches on fire. Wait, does that sound familiar? We're not talking about the president. Um, was that out loud? So anyhow, uh, in this picture, we have a trash heap right? And it's, it's on fire. And then you have June, who is like, damn the fire. I can say damn because we're talking about hell. Damn the fire. Now, if I said fuck, that would be different. You're not allowed to say that. But damn the fire. And she would go into it to try and score something to eat. Now, whether it's edible or not, June does not care, right? She's going in. My dog is also not the quickest thing you will ever find. So there's a good chance that the fire might catch her. And then you would have what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? So in these places, in these trash heaps, Gehenna, there would have been scavengers and animals that would have died, had been caught up in the fire, would have been consumed in that space. And it would have been consistent with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Something else that we know happened at Gehenna was baby sacrifices by other peoples, not Jews. 
And so this also plays into the picture of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can imagine if you have ever made a compost pile, what's a good chance that you're gonna find amongst the compost? Worms, right? Bugs, worms that are just, man, it is, it is some good stuff in that compost, right? And so you have the unending, undying worms in this picture. So Gehenna and the way Jesus describes it is absolutely nothing more than how you would describe a trash heap. Are we all tracking so far? So when Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees in this situation, if you continue to live the way that you're living, what you will consider to be life will actually be Gehenna. Right? But if you change your ways, if you repent, what does repent mean? What's that? Turn back. If you were to get back on the right path, right? And this is where I, I find that it's unfortunate that we've made so much of our conversations about faith and everything only spiritual. These are such a physicalness to this picture that Jesus is, is talking about, right? Imagine Jesus standing at this crossroads where you can both see the Temple Mount and you can see the smoldering of Gehenna, right? And Jesus is giving this teaching and he says that if you continue to live the way you're living, it's going to lead to this. But if you're on that path, you have a chance to get back on the correct path. And if you got back on the correct path, then you could take the path that leads to life, right? That leads to health, that leads to beauty, that leads to goodness, that ultimately leads to what? Salvation, safety, right? All right, any thoughts or questions so far? Nothing. So why do you think then that we have become so focused on hell? What is it about us that we are so focused on hell? Right, like in our minds, in our human minds, we need like rewards and punishment and mm -hmm. consequences, you know, more than just like natural. And I feel like in especially like Western Christianity, we've turned it into like like I've heard people say, like, you know, if there's no consequences, then why bother being a person? Right? Like because mm -hmm. what's what now we have this like futuristic concept and like what's now? doesn't matter we just like build our whole identity on this futuristic place so if being a good person doesn't give me something in the end then why bother right and i've heard that so many times it's yeah and so so to your point this is where the danger of spiritualizing everything about our faith 
we need something like that or we perceive we need something like that, right? So, you know, people will often, when they hear me speak, will, and I've shared this with you before, will say, so are you a universalist, right? Do you believe everyone's in? And as I usually say, I'm not, but I pray that God is, right? Um, and this picture of people will say, well, then if everyone's in, why bother, right? And it's like, it's like, well, this is the problem with spiritualizing everything is that I would argue that I am a better human being because of my faith than I was before my faith. That I, I create safe spaces for people, I hope, that I strive towards that, I function towards that, that I drive for that, and that my life and my world is better because of my faith. But I would argue a lot of that's because I don't have a just a spiritual view of my faith. It's also a very physical view of my, my faith. And because of that, I can't imagine, even if there were no God, I would say this is still the best way I can imagine to live. Um, and I think that's a strange thing that a lot of Christians don't actually have because we've made salvation spiritual, we've made faith spiritual, we've made hell spiritual, like all everything about it is spiritual and it has very little impact other than burn all of your secular CDs. And you know what, the music industry loves that, you know why? Because you have to buy them again whenever you get over that moment. You go back and buy them again. And what they really hope is for another repentive moment where you burn them all again. And eventually you do what a good Christian does and you just pirate them instead of rebuying them. So David says, why, why is this? Here's the strongest motivator. And the man says, it's easier to bully people with friends to with friends to burn them to our way of thinking than to live in a way Yes. Yes. Mitch. Um, to be honest with you, I think it defers our responsibility. Okay, our responsibility is to create safe places for people. Right. All right. We put it on the individual to make those decisions. Okay, yeah. And a lot of times those individuals are in a place to make a safe place. Yeah. But they can't. Right. And that's where the corporateness is necessary, right? So when that text talks about work out your salvation in fear and trembling, the your is, as I like to say, y'all, right? Y'all work out safety. Like that's our job as a community is to create a safeness. That's why the picture of taking the kingdom wherever you go is, is significant. Because wherever we go as a community, we should be constantly creating safety within the spaces in which we enter. That that's our job, that's our role as being kingdom people, is that we are spreading the safety of God across the world. That's beautiful. Uh, and that is way less tricky than you know, spreading the fear of hell around the world. Right? Yeah, Diane. Um, going back to your previous Like we've talked before about what it looks like the Bible can be very similar to God's parenting. And it I'm not saying it, it's very unhealthy to give a negative consequence, like just thinking, but it's a lot easier and I feel like how there's been like a way of the church instead of teaching like you know, the behavior that you're doing is harmful not only to you but to everyone else that takes time and and so a quicker way to change the 
Yeah, and this is where it becomes a little complicated is that there are consequences, right? Like if you tell your child not to touch the stove and they touch the stove anyhow while the stove's on, consequences, they got burned, right? Uh, and so there are consequences to disobedience. Um, but I don't know that I would go as far as, you know, some of the, uh, the ways that we imagine it. Tiana? Um, I think Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very it's a very powerful thing, right? Like I I have been in churches, I have colleagues who lead churches that really focus on hell. And they have they have never been shamed or booed by their congregation, I'm pretty sure. Just saying. Not to their face. Um, that's true. That's true. I appreciate that all of your shame and booing is directed at my face. Um, shut up, Lee. Um, but this picture, though, is really important because it is really controlling. And it is, I have to say, tempting as a church leader because I can tell you that I'd be willing to bet that the fire and brimstone churches have better offerings, uh, have better volunteers, have better attendance, have better daycare, childcare, have better than everything that we do here mediocrely, right? Because there is a, a weight that is put on all of your decisions constantly about worthiness, right? And in reality, Worthiness has little to do with anything outside of that you are a reflection of the image of God. And that's what makes you worthy. It's not how much you give to the church. It's not how much you volunteer. It's not how much you participate or attendance, right? But it is you. You at your core is what's worthy. However, when we take that power of control and fear, we can always make people question and shame and guilt whether or not they're doing enough. And that is not how we do. I would argue in some ways that is actually the church making Sunday mornings Gehenna. Right? I would rather people show up here because once a week they want to experience what it's like to be in the midst of safety and love and care then you show up once a week because you're afraid of what the consequences would be if you didn't show up. I was going to say, uh, I think one of the reasons that Western theology, the rest of Christianity, has that view of hell most as most readings of the text is because it's what. I think it's the most keeping the of God. Yes. Yeah. So, like, if you only, for example, view the parable of uh, separating the sheep from the goats as, and then we're going to, you know, the, the sheep will go back and get rid of her, and the goats will eat the 
Roasted lamb, baby. Yeah, or, or say, for example, you know, we don't see it as God protecting the sheep from bad consequences. Right. The decisions of parents, you know, or whatever. Uh, you know, and, and the idea, the pervasive idea that justice is retributed by the restored and so there's, you know, there's, I think very few people that have a view of hell because they say, well, it's eternal. It can't be restored. Yes. Uh, it has to be retributed because you're never getting out of it. Yes. Therefore, it must be punishment rather than restoration of the people that are bringing you back. So, so if God separates people in such that, you know, you're going to spend eternity in one another, you know, that there must be at some point in which this whole uh, restorative stuff breaks down. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So let's discuss punishment real quick. Um, so for most of us, we okay. Maybe I shouldn't assume this about you. Um, how would you define God's justice? What's that? Okay, righting wrongs. What else? Would you define it as good? Would you define it as righteous? Right? So let me give you something. Uh, so say Malcolm, my 15-year-old that's in the room over here, uh, because he sucks like a child. No, I'm joking. He's helping watch the kids. Um, so my son, Malcolm, if he were to never call me dad, and because of that, I just decided that he was going to be grounded for the rest of his life. Now, even if at some point he ultimately does call me dad, maybe I'll let him out of being grounded, but maybe it's too late. He had his chance, and now he's just calling me dad, and I can't believe that it's for real pure reasons. He just doesn't want to be grounded. How many of you, by a show of hands, would say that I am a good parent? I said, how many of you, by a raising of your hand, would say that I'm a good parent? Thanks, Chris. Um, right? We wouldn't. In fact, you would say, um, you'd probably call children's services on me. Right, wouldn't you agree? You'd probably say, this is a pretty wicked human being. However, We'll say that God's justice is good and right, but if someone doesn't call God dad, papa, abba, father, whatever, and because of that, God would punish them, not just grounding them, but actually keep them alive for all eternity to torture them over and over and over again. And we say, our God is a good God. Our God is loving, and our God is compassionate and merciful. Now, by a raise of hands, how many would say that that is good? Right? But that's what we do. Like, I, I think of it like this, right? Like, if we're actually talking about eternity, um, I imagine there's dirt somewhere on this wall right here. Here's the spot. 
And so that spot on the wall is our entirety of our life. Right? That's one little spot. And if to that other wall is the beginning expression of eternity, that in the amount of life that we live as a spot on that wall to that wall, we are punished infinitely past that, all the way to my house and beyond in South Toledo, for that spot, that speck of a moment in all of history, that to, for God to then dismiss us, to throw us out, to cast us out, to then destroy us over and over again, and to say that represents the wholeness of the love of God. None of us would say that is a good father. None of us would say that is a good parent. None of us would say that that is the behavior of someone that I can adore and honor, right? And we have this, this, this weird thing where we separate these two pictures. So let me give you an example. The idea of hell in scripture, if we were to say that a hell exists in some form like we have been maybe raised to believe, what is the one major flaw of our picture of hell that we do not see ever in the scriptures? Can you think of something? Oh, for the love of God. When I ask these really, you know, convoluted questions, I would like for you not to ask me to repeat them. I'm saying that, you know, I'm just going to tell you because I don't feel like figuring it out again. Yeah. So here's what I would say to build off of that is God sends Israel into exile a lot in the text. But what is always the hope and promise? Return. Exile without return is not a biblical concept. God never exiles anyone without the promise of return and restoration and redemption. It's every single time in the text. God always restores. God always redeems. God always brings them back into what? Safety, salvation, community. Always, 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 always. And even in the midst of exile, what does God encourage the people to do? Jeremiah 29. Yes. Be about the welfare of the city in which you are exiled. Does that sound like hell in the way that we've been defined? It's been defined for us. Instead, it's this picture that God says, that there are times that you live in such a way that it is so counter to safety. It is so counter to healthiness. You are actually killing the community that you live in, and I need you to step out for a minute. But it's always step out for a minute. 
It's always with the promise of being restored back. Even in the text where Paul talks about those who are living in a manner that is counter to the way of God and are forced out of community, are only forced out of community in order for that community to remain what? Safe. Because when you are in the midst of the community and you are in such an unhealthy place and you are destroying the safety in which people live within that space, it is better for you to step out for a moment. Now, what does God, I would argue, what would God imagine? Or maybe let's go with Paul. What do you hope that Paul actually also wants to happen when someone is removed from a community because they are destroying the safety of the community? Yes. I would say he wants the community to be working to restore that. Absolutely. Think about this. In the text, uh, what happens to someone who has uh, a skin disease? Leprosy. And where and who ends up outside with them? Priests. The priests live in the same place. The cities that are put around Israel, where the lepers have to go, are the same places where the priests live. Do you think that's a coincidence? What was associated with leprosy? in ancient times. Gossip, which does what? Let's bring it full circle. We were talking about gossip. What does it do? Yeah, it destroys, it kills, it warps reality. It harms things. Now, I'm not saying that leprosy really is caused by gossip, but the idea that the priests were to live out in those these same spaces, right? Like leprosy, if you don't understand, really was the walking dead. It was the AMC top hit show of ancient Israel, right? Um, it was the walking dead of the time, right? They were dying. They were literally, their body was dying. You know, limbs could fall off of someone who was, uh, had leprosy. And so they represented death walking. Right? We have like dead man walking with death row type pictures, but dead man walking was this picture. And the priests would live amongst these people in hopes that they would be what? What? Safe, restored, right? Think about this. Jesus, I know we haven't opened our text yet, but I hope you realize we have opened the text today, right? Jesus heals some lepers. And what does he say to them to do? Go show yourself to the priests. Why? What? I can't hear you. Which would then allow them to be what? Restored. So all of these pictures in scripture is God's way of restoring people. So if you were thrown out, if Paul imagines that you had lived in such a way that you were so unhealthy, so imagine in our space, that someone lived in such a way that it caused some people to not be safe in this space. I've been in churches where people have done that, right? For them to be asked to leave, I would imagine Paul would also hope that people from the community would also go out with them 
to, to bring about as their death and decay of themselves, that we would go out with them to hopefully restore them back. That it's not just that they've been thrown out, like I've seen churches do. And oftentimes the person that th gets thrown out of the church is not the one that's unhealthy. And then they just leave them to die. And the truth is, God sends Israel into exile. What immediately happens? Every time, every single time God sends people into exile, what happens instantly? God goes with them, right? You hear that? God goes with them. I don't know about you, but again, my definition of hell growing up was that when uh, you go to hell, it's what? You're separated from who? God. Again, nowhere else in the text. Nowhere in the text. God always goes with. So when Jesus teaches about hell, how can we view this as, not that hell is, but these teachings actually are positive? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. What else? Like that? I mean, absolutely. What else? Wow. Yes. Like, okay, let's see if we can build even more, right? Like, let's build on those two. What else? Yeah, I mean, can you think of an exile of an individual in the Bible? It's like all of Israel. Do you imagine when God exiles all of Israel that every single Israelite deserved to be exiled? Do you imagine when they're returned from exile that every single Israelite deserved to be returned from exile? Look, there were still assholes in Israel whenever they were returned from exile. There was, right? They didn't all deserve it, but it was communal. So what else? Um, it's all really about love and lovability. If everybody is ultimately lovable and worth saving. Yes, worthy of safety, worthy of salvation, worthy of all those things. Yes. Anything else? Excellent. Excellent. I mean, do you really think when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, I know that in most churches we've made the Pharisees the enemy, but let me be clear if you've never heard me say this, I am 99.99999% sure Jesus was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. Guess what? He was, he was trained by Gamaliel, which is Hillel's grandson. Jesus agrees with Hillel on everything except for divorce. That's the only thing that Hillel and Jesus disagree on. So, and Jesus has all of the things that define someone as being a Pharisee. Jesus functions and practices all of those. 
That's also why the Pharisees and Jesus interact so much. It's because Jesus was probably, and they call him teacher, right? So Jesus was probably a Pharisee. So I know we get negative. We've, we've almost, it's anti-Jewish at best, anti-Semitic at worst, when we like to think of Pharisees as non-believers. They were believers, just didn't necessarily think that Jesus was Messiah at this point. But we know in Acts 15 that all, there, there were believing Pharisees. It says it right in Acts 15. It doesn't say they gave up being a Pharisee to become believers. Believing Pharisees. So if Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you're at a split in the road, it's a fork in the road, you can move towards life or you can move towards destruction. What is his concern? What is Jesus's concern there? Charged with protecting and, and being the leaders and making a safe community, then that's a huge concern, right? Yeah. The people you trust who are guiding you, who are and we had this conversation and said, you can either lead your communities to a place that will ultimately be their demise, their destruction. They will be amongst trash and upheaval and death and gnashing of teeth. Or you can be a part of a faith that leads people to safety and life and health. Right? Like, that's pretty compelling, especially if it's Jesus doing it, right? Like, I think that'd be more compelling than if I confronted a bunch of religious leaders. Um, this picture is that Jesus is, is not condemning people, right? Because if Jesus was condemning them, what would he say at that moment instead? He would tell them to go to Gehenna. Get out of my face. Go to Gehenna. Instead, Jesus is saying, you are functioning. We've all heard this, hell on earth, heaven on earth, right? We've heard this language that some of us are living in hell on earth, right? And this is where it's so important because some people have been led there and some people have such low self-worth that they intentionally walked that plank. All those people deserve the opportunity to be pulled from that trash heap. And this is what God imagines, because God goes with them. And if God goes with them, who else should go with them? We should, absolutely. We should be dumpster divers, right? Like that's really, like today instead of fishers of men, we should be dumpster divers. There you go, tweet that, right? Um, and so this picture is really how we should be functioning. And to me, that's so positive. Like, there's a part in the, in the epistles that says, blessed is he who goes and rescues the one who was once in the light and is no longer in the light. You guys familiar with that passage? Right? This is a passage that's really hard for people that believe in once saved, always saved, because this implies that someone can walk away from being in the light. But this picture is, blessed are those who dumpster dive. 
Blessed are those who are willing to go out into the midst of the trash heap and, and risk their own safety. And yes, I'm intentionally using that word safety with salvation, risking their own safety to retrieve someone and bring them back. That's really powerful. And that's what we're called to. We're not called to holy huddles. We're called to something way more beautiful and way more rich. And we should be less about condemning people and telling them to go to hell and more about trying to find ways to help people get out of the trash heap that they're in. And I think you see the example of like Jesus doing that, right? You know, when he with people who were undesirable at that time, like he, while he did, I think that like either while he did interact with Pharisees and was part of that, he also wasn't afraid to go and interact with people who indeed you know, um, devalued or, you know, didn't matter. And I think it kind of goes back to what Wade said last week. Instead of, like, if you're on a sinking ship, instead of standing in a lifeboat with a megaphone, it's like, no, the lifeboat, actually going down into the depths of the ship. And yes. Through, getting those people bringing right. back up. Yes. And that idea that our safety doesn't always matter the most, right? Like, so, like, it's I think a great example in the text, or not in all of the texts, is John 8. Right? Anybody know what John 8 is that's in some texts, but not in all texts? The woman caught in adultery. Right? First of all, if you know the Torah well enough, you know that if she's caught, it means she's actually physically caught in the act which also means that the man should have been brought also. Uh, so the great irony is, is that the male wasn't brought, just the woman. And what does Jesus do? He cultivates safety, he protects her, and then he says, go and sin no more, right? So he still holds her accountable, but he's, he, he provides safety for her. He doesn't let anyone throw a rock at her. He doesn't allow anyone to condemn her. He protects her. But then he also says, but turn back, right? And this beautiful picture of that she wasn't unredeemable. In fact, she was very redeemable, right? Is a beautiful illustration of this picture of that people were still accountable, but we're not unredeemable. And no one is, right? Did you have something, Mitch? No, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about talking is, I mean, Fact, Jesus ultimately ended up in an unsafe place, and that was on the cross. Absolutely. All right, and even God, God can even redeem that unsafe place, yep. which is an amazing thought. Yes, very so much so. Nothing beyond God's ability to provide safety to yep. individuals to do that. Yep, absolutely. So the cross kind of like symbolizes totally just the worstness, like everything, like against. Judaism, like how they wanted to be buried. Yep. Like, wasn't the cross like an absolute? Yep. You know, anyone hung upon a tree is a, is accursed. Uh, you have to be buried within a certain amount of time from your death. Just that, and just that, if you think about that being the symbol of our redemption. Absolutely. And the faith Absolutely. To make people more, you know, conscious that like nothing is your, you know, there's nothing else. Right. Absolutely. Well, I think you all have given an excellent teaching today. Um, I really do, because 
your input uh, has been invaluable. So I hope that you see that when Jesus uses hell, when the scriptures use hell, it's not meant as this place in which you have no hope. It's not meant in such a way of this space in which you will get your just desserts. It's not meant in this space in which you are separated from God. But rather, it is a consequence of the way that we live and God desires for there to be so much more for us. And God wants us to experience hope and God wants us to experience life and that it isn't permanent. It doesn't have to be permanent and God will stay with you as long as necessary. God stays with Israel in exile at one point for 70 years. God will stay as long as necessary in order to bring about your redemption and your return and your restoration. I find that to be comforting because there are many days in which you could describe me as living in a trash heap, right? There are many days in which I get lost on the road to life and to know that I am not alone and I am not unredeemable is a very beautiful and rich thing. Any last second thoughts before we, we wrap up? Chris? I'm just curious why it's a small city down there in Columbus, Ohio, where only talking I've often wondered that as well. And then I just reflect and think, well, there is a city in Pennsylvania called Blue Bowl. So really it's inexplicable why any city chooses a name. And there is Hell, Michigan. They just get right to it. Um, so any other thoughts or questions? All right, let me pray over us, and then we'll stop the recording and take prayer requests. God, we are grateful that you are a God that doesn't relish in the idea of our demise, doesn't look forward to ridding yourself of our presence, but instead desires that we would all live, that we would all experience life. I think about your, the words in the text that it says that you desire that no one should perish, but all should live. Lord, I'm grateful that that is your, your call and your desire for us. Lord, I pray that as your people, that we also live that way, that we look out into our world and we desire for no one to perish, but we desire for all to experience life and fullness of life, and that we actually have a call to to go and be uh, participants in that. Lord, may we be a people that cultivate safety. May we be a people that cultivate restoration and redemption and reconciliation. Lord, may we be a true and honest reflection of you in this world. I love you. I praise you. I give you all the glory. Amen.